Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this episode, you'll hear Jeff Zimmerman. On the way into the OR, though, the nurse wheeled me into this room, and she said, would you like a prosthetic? And I said, well, would I ever? Can I get two? (laughs) That and more. But before that, I just want to say the post office is always crowded. You know that. Now it's going to be even more crowded with people mailing in their taxes. But you still need to get out your envelopes and packages for your business, so use Stamps.com instead. Stamps.com brings all the services of the post office right to your desk. It's convenient, easy to use. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package, right there from your computer and printer. Then just hand it to the mailman. Stamps.com even sends you a free digital scale that automatically calculates the exact postage you need. And the scale is yours to keep. You'll never have to go to the post office again. We use Stamps.com at Risk in the Story Studio, and we love it. And right now, you use our promo code RISK for this special offer. It's a no-risk trial plus a $110 bonus offer that includes digital scale and up to $55 free postage. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in RISK. That's Stamps.com. Enter RISK. And now... Because our last live show in New York City was so good, we're just going to give it to you in full, without interruption. It's the Risk Live show of March 2014 at the People's Improv Theater in New York. Now here's the show. Welcome to Risk. How's everyone doing tonight? 
Ah, boy, oh boy, oh boy. If you don't know, Risk is the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. How many people know the podcast? (laughs) Tonight, we have the theme freedom. Freedom is the theme we're tackling tonight. So every story will be about George Michael's 1992... (laughs) No, as you know, we're super loose with themes here. It would be interesting if one night we were just complete and total Nazis about, no, 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 this, every story has to be about uh, George Michael. Uh, no. For me, for, I was thinking, well, what, what does freedom, what are the two biggest freedom moments for me would probably be stuff that's very related to the podcast because the first big freedom moment for me would be leaving Cincinnati, Ohio. <laughs> And coming to New York because the day I stepped foot... Two things happened the day I stepped foot in New York. For one, I was walking down the street, talking to myself, as I always do, very loudly with lots of gestures. And I looked around and noticed, no one's looking at me strange. I was like, I am home. Uh, And the other thing was, because I had left Cincinnati and arrived in New York, I realized, oh, I can be gay now. Uh, And you all know a lot about that. Um, And the other big freedom moment for me was when I uh, created this show, because, you know, shortly after that happened, I realized, oh, I can have a career again. It was, you know, for about a decade there, it was kind of touch and go. But I made it through, and so here we are! The first person I want to bring up to share a story, he has a long-running show at uh, UCB East, and it is, well, it actually happens on Thursday nights. I think it's every Thursday. I think it's happening right now. Uh, (laughs) The hell is he doing here, come to think of it? (laughs) It's called Lasers in the Jungle. Please welcome to the stage, Mr. Sean Crespo! All right, all right, all right. All right, stop. What if McConaughey just did that for like 12 in a row? All right, 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 all right. Shut up, Matt. All right. When I was 19, and I won't forget you while I'm talking. When I was 19, I took what I thought would be the worst job in the world. I was wrong, because my next job was the worst job in the world. I was an MC on a booze cruise boat in Boston Harbor. Thank you. I practiced this with uh, way fewer laughs in my head, so this is gonna go great. My job was to give a tour over a PA system to hundreds and hundreds of elderly people. And for some reason that summer, everybody on the boat, they were all elderly Dutch, elderly Japanese, and elderly Russian couples for no reason whatsoever. It was like one of those DC Comics special issues where they go to an alternative universe where like Superman was like Hitler's best friend and the Axis powers had won but it was the Dutch and the Jam. it was weird so uh, my job was to point things out in the harbor that were of note but these guys none of them spoke English so when the company gave me a 300 page folder with all the things to memorize I didn't memorize any of it I just made shit up because I'm an American 
So every tour was basically just like, yeah, if you look over on your right, you'll see the remains of uh, George Washington Memorial High School, <laughs> where George himself went to school, lettered in horses and wigs. Uh, must have been tough for George going to a school named after himself, constantly reminded of his own mortality. <laughs> if you look over on your left, you'll see uh, they're filming Cheers the Movie. <laughs> Got the whole cast back together again. Will that Woody ever learn? <laughs> so that was my job. But they weren't there for me. They were there for something else. I was just filler. They were there for the service. They were there for the waiters, who were all musical theater students from local colleges. And their job was to sing and dance the food over to these people. <laughs> How horrible is that? And to make it worse, the company wouldn't refer to them as the waiters. They forced everybody to refer to them as the wait cast. The wait cast! Come on! Now, <laughs> the wait cast had uh, six songs, one of which was a medley of the other five. Um, <laughs> so one day when we got stuck out in the water because the engine broke down, it was a you know, brutal Boston summer day. It was like 110, uh, 120 with the accents. And... Uh, <laughs> Everybody's suffering from like heat exhaustion. There was this 19-year-old kid. This is when I decided to leave the boat. This 19-year-old kid, musical theater student, he's lying on top of a piano that's nailed to the deck of a boat. And it's that part of the day where he's supposed to sing like a smoky, bluesy, like fabulous Baker's Boy sort of song. And he was going to do the theme from Fame. But he had gone crazy from heat exhaustion. So he didn't do a smoky version of Fame. He did a crazy fuck you version of Fame that was on a piano that was like, Fame! I want to live forever. Do you want to live forever? I do. I want to fly so high. Fame. Just like, oh my God. <laughs> so um, that was my last day on the boat. So I walk off. I walk a block in Boston and I see a flyer on a telephone pole that's about to change my life. And that flyer said, would you like to be paid to sleep? That's, that is never a good flyer to respond to. 80-point font. I think the font was future mistakes. First of all, that's a rhetorical question. Everybody would like to be paid to sleep. Second of all, it was a lie. It was not accurate. Now, if the flyer had said, would you like to be paid to test the limits of your endurance physically and mentally and have a rectal thermometer in you for two weeks? Totally accurate. I would have known what I was getting into. But I quit my job, I sign up for this thing, it takes a couple weeks, so now I'm, I, I have to do it. Here are the rules of this thing. I'm, at the end of it, if I make it, I get about $2,400. I can pay my rent for the summer. Now, you're in a tiny hospital room, there are no windows, everything's just off-white, you have to lie in a bed, you're not allowed to move. No books, no TV, no music, because it's about your temperature too. It's a sleep deprivation study. But yeah, it, yeah, thank you, I know. Just thinking about it is horrible. Doing it was a lot worse. You're not allowed to move anywhere. You get about an hour of sleep every night, sleep, night, no time cues, who knows. And then twice during the study, I had to stay up for 48 hours straight. Yeah, pretty bad. It was pretty awful. Um, now the only way they can keep you awake is by having interns come in and chat with you. 
And all the interns are like, they're Harvard students, they're really cute. They're almost all women, because women are smarter and they become doctors and men are like, I'm gonna be a bowler. Um, Can you even still do that? I don't know. I'm gonna try. Never give up, never surrender. So there's this one intern named Lana who I hit it off with and her job was to keep me up when I was falling asleep. But you know, the thing is when you're trapped in a room with somebody and you can't move, after two days you've, ex- you've done all the topics. You know what I mean? Like you've chatted about everything you're gonna chat about. You're like, oh, you like ponies? I like ponies too, great. After three days, you're at the point where all you can talk about is what's happening in the room, which is nothing or horrific. Because it's uh, every conversation, like if you're going to talk about what's happening in the room, it's going to be like, hey, uh, remember that time I crapped into a bowl you were holding because you're collecting my solid waste as a part of this study? Call me afterwards. (laughs) Call me later, Lana. The other thing was, and I forgot to mention this, uh, they had to draw blood four times a day, twice from each arm, but they had these little cartridges that they just kept on you the whole time, and the doctor, all he had to do was come in and put a test tube in, hit a button, the needle would go in, and it would draw blood. But a couple times, he pulled it out too fast and snapped the needle. It didn't hurt, but there's blood spurting everywhere, and I, the doctor felt bad, so I thought I'd make him feel better by going, Spider-Man! Take that, Dr. Octopus. It's Dr. Feldman. I'm trying. Spider-Man. Doctors don't have fun. So about seven days in, you're desperate to feel anything. You haven't felt anything in a week. You're just sitting there. You go. You're seeing things. Your brain is making things up to feel anything. It got to the point when he came in to draw the needle. I was reacting not like somebody getting blood taken, a needle pushed into him. I was reacting like somebody giving a cool iced tea in a hot Alabama summer day. <laughs> oh, thank you so much, doctor. Hmm. Oh, refreshing. It's like an autumn wind in my veins. And that was the best part. That was when it was good, when it got worse, like three days later after all this lack of sleep. You know, I'm 19 years old. I'm not allowed to move from my bed, so I'm not allowed to take her, Bidner. You know, like a 19-year-old will four or five times a day. 10 days, it's backed up. It's just been in there for 10 days, (laughs) brewing like the Dianetics volcano, but somehow less creepy and more believable. So 10 days go by, I I resolve to myself, I'm going to have release. I concoct a plan. I'm delirious. There's a room filled with doctors who are going to outwit me in a second. Here's my plan. I'm going to wait for the lights to go down for the hour of sleep I get and jerk off. So here's what I did. I got my lunch. I smuggled the packet of mayonnaise they gave me. Because I'm a forward thinker. And lubrication is important. I didn't want to chafe during my golden minute. The lights go down, they, give, they put all the measurement devices on me, Lana comes over the mic, she's like, good night, Mr. Crespo. I'm like, Mr. Crespo's my dad, shut up. <laughs> I'm doofy with way too much confidence, and the lights go off, I go to town, oh my god, I go to town right away, there's no stopping me. It was, it was awesome, it might have been the best I've ever had, it was so great. I forgot a couple of things. One, there are cameras everywhere, and... And the doctors told me they were all infrared equipped. That's one. (laughs) It's bad enough. Number two, they're monitoring my heart rate in all of my body systems. I'm pretty sure when my heart rate runs from like 60 to 390, (laughs) 
a, a little beep sounded, and they're like, oh, what's going on on this monitor? And they saw a thermal image of me clearly jerking off! Like, they saw me the way Predator would have seen me jerking off. <laughs> Just... But even Predator would have been disgusted with me. Predator would have been like, dude, come on, Razornet dead. <laughs> Fucking guy. So Lana comes over to the mic and she's like, hold on, Mr. Crespo. I'm like, Mr. Crespo's my dad. It's too late. The lights come on. She walks in just as the pool of shame is forming. Spreading out in my, by the way, my very absorbent uh, brawny medical products, cotton gown. Thank you to them. It's too late. And by I, there was maybe like, I'm going to, it's been 10 days, so I'm going to guesstimate that maybe there was a quart <laughs> of semen. I don't know what that is in metric, so if you're from Europe, I'm sorry. So they clean me up. She's a little sad. She's disappointed in me. And I promise not to do it again. But, you know, they kept me up for another day. I forgot I had done it. I jerked off again. <laughs> I promise not to do it again. I jerked off again the next day and they kicked me off the study. But here's the important point. I got, I guilted them into paying me. I didn't have to go back to that fucking boat and I was free for the summer. Drops Mike walks away. <laughs> I think the worst time I was in a situation of being caught masturbating, I think I was in the seventh grade, right around there, and I had a tiny little bedroom on the second floor of our house. I had a bed that had lots of problems. It was not a well-constructed bed. But one day I got the idea to uh, see if I could give myself a blowjob. You know, I mean, the thing that was so fun about masturbating back then was that you could very often think, oh, well, wait, let's try this. None of it worked, you know? Like, you would always come up with new radical ways of, oh, what if we tried this? Um, the blowjob thing never ended up working either. But this particular time, I was, like, bending myself, like, so that my legs were kind of, like, over my head and on the other, by my pillow and everything. And, you know, now my mom is extremely like a puritanical kind of person. She walked in my room, and what happened was I just went, blah, 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 you know, just made this like noise uh, as if I might be like, you know, like suddenly an exorcism was happening. <laughs> and my legs flipped down, and then my, my top kind of flipped up and then my top flipped back down and my legs flipped back up and the, then the bed just collapsed and mom <laughs> said nothing and just closed the door <laughs> no words were exchanged just <laughs> and uh, we've never spoken of it since our next storyteller is he is a veteran a cherished member of the storytelling community here in New York City he's been on This American Life uh, he has a show called And I Am Not Lying it is at UCB East on every second Friday he is also a recent Moth Grand Slam winner please welcome to the stage Mr. Jeff Zimmerman <laughs> Thank you. 
Hey, friends. Um, my buddy at work turns to me every afternoon. He's my friend, but he's also a dumbass. We have those friends at work. And he turned to me and he was like, no, dude, seriously, for real this time, which is better? He asks me this every day. Having one testicle or having three? <laughs> and I was like, this is so stupid, man. Every day, the answer is always going to be three because it's better to be creepy than a little sad. Well, then one day, I was doing one of those self-exams in the shower that are so important, and I discovered that my left testicle was the size and density of a Cadbury egg. <laughs> that ain't right. So I, I went to the doctor, and uh, the doctor took a look at it, and he said, oh, this is malignant as hell. Uh, he didn't say it like that, but that's... <laughs> I went into shock immediately when he said, you have testicular cancer. And uh, 24 hours later, me and Lance Armstrong are riding the same unicycle. Um, on the way into the OR, though, the nurse wheeled me into this room, and she said, would you like a prosthetic? And I said, well, would I ever? Can I get two? <laughs> Just to double down on the joke, really commit, you know, like come back to work and bang, 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 how do you like me now? Uh, I have a complicated relationship with my southern heritage and uh, nothing would better exemplify that than if they let me to put an actual Civil War musket ball in there as a prosthetic. <laughs> could literally drag around a heavy and tragic reminder of our sad history. <laughs> Only talk to my black friends about it when I'm drunk. <laughs> nah, just we got stuff to do. And after surgery, I mean seriously, it was like diagnosis, call your mom, surgery the next day, bang, 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 like that. And I just got whiplash from the whole thing. And I was lying there in bed after it was outpatient, too. They can do this so good, so quick now. It's like with a power saw or something. And, um, and I was lying there in bed next to my girlfriend, and um, she was asleep, and I just lay there and look up at the night. And all my fear and just terror, like, what has happened? What's going on with me? Is my body, how quickly is my body going to kill me? It just flies out, and it sort of swirls around with the darkness and it combines, and I, I personify this with like a big black bird that just flew down out of the night, It'd sit on my chest, and it would hop forward and put its dark little beak in my ear and whisper horrible stuff. It said, look man, you have just gone through a doorway, and it's weird on the other side. You're gonna find it real, real hard to relate to people. They're gonna come up to you, and they're gonna try to talk, and it's just not gonna connect. You're gonna feel super alienated, super lonely, and it's never gonna go away. The, the best you can hope for is that you'll get used to the loneliness, but you'll never, you'll never stop feeling it. And I'll be damned if that bird wasn't right. Um, my wife, oh, spoiler alert guys, but my girlfriend at the time <laughs> is, uh, She's a cancer survivor too, although she had chemo and radiation and didn't lose any body parts real quick, and I didn't have any chemo and radiation, and I did. And so our suffering is the same size, but it's shaped real different. And uh, she would try to relax when I would have a panic attack. She would try to relax me, and I was like, what if I die, what if I would die? And um, she was like, listen, everybody's gonna die one day. It's just that cancer patients have much more reliable data. Oh, it's weird that I didn't find that comforting, you know, and um, and then like also when people hear that you've had cancer 
it makes all the bullshit in their head, all the baggage is just rattling around up there, just fall right out of their mouths. They walk, like somebody came up to me on the street, not somebody, somebodies came up to me, a lot of people, and said, uh, oh my God, I'm so sorry. Listen, have you tried yoga? It can prevent all kinds of diseases, and it's really good for you spiritually, too. And I was just like, uh, no, I'm not, I'm not into that. Uh, and when people say stuff like that, it's like saying if you didn't do their little weird health thing, that's why you got cancer. Somebody texted me, sent me a text message that said, sorry, you had cancer, like just the you. Have you, have you tried wheatgrass juice? <laughs> no and no. <laughs> Uh, nope, zero people came up to me and said, have you tried getting super fucking high and watching Pootie Tang over and over again? <laughs> I did that like it would cure cancer, and I'm here to tell you it's real good for you spiritually. <laughs> and I'd lie there at night again, and that bird would come back, and I was just like, you know, so I felt like a little teeny, a man this big, wearing a spacesuit made out of wet wool who was just screaming all the time. You know, I had no energy, couldn't really do stuff, and the black bird would come back and be like, you really lost a lot of verve. You're just not getting stuff done anymore. You don't have get up and go. I don't know what is wrong with you. It's like you've been half neutered or something. And I would just think, God. Like, if this is what it's like to be dead, my girlfriend sleeps so hard she smiles in her sleep, and she's lying next to me just smiling her ass off for eight hours. <laughs> I got to deal with this stupid bird. And um, I was just like, if this is what it's like to be dead, to just lie here in the black and just float, nobody says anything stupid about yoga. You don't have to hear anything about this bird. I don't have to get out. I can't really can't think of a reason to get out of this bed ever again. So I might as well just kill myself and be done with it. That happened for a good while. And then um, one day, I was waiting to get a CAT scan. I was in the waiting room, and they give you this liquid you got to drink. It's like a radioactive dye, and they try to cover the taste with, with um, crystal light. And they're like, oh, it just tastes like crystal light. It tastes exactly like robot piss sweetened with antifreeze. <laughs> and I'm sitting there just drinking my drink, marinating my body's tissues. And um, this couple comes into the cancer ward, and the man... He just is like standing, he's like the prowl of a ship, and he just comes in, and he has these silver, perfect silver temples, just like an asshole, and he's got this anus-colored suntan. He looks perfectly responsible for the entire financial crisis. And the woman that he's with was gorgeous at one time, and her hair is just... You guys are going to feel great about yourselves in a second. Her hair was like a oak river and had these vivid, piercing blue eyes, but the cancer, laughers, the cancer has ravaged her body, and she's like a pile of antlers in a bathrobe. And she sits down next to him to wait, and she nestles into his body, and then he just falls asleep like, like mouth open, back hard, not even trying not to snore. And she pokes him, and it was just like, um, you know, you wouldn't be quite so tired if you hadn't been out doing all those drugs again with God knows how many other women. And he says, he says this, he says, well, we discussed my habits before we entered into this relationship, so I don't think I should have to explain that at all. I'm just here to support you right now, okay? And she was like, oh, okay. 
Well, here's another habit you have. You follow me around, especially when I need my own alone time. When I go to the apartment in Italy, you know that's what I need when I need to think for myself. You know I can't think for myself when you're around, but what happens? You show up with all your friends a day later, and then we're just doing blow and skiing all over again like nothing's wrong. I can't believe this. I can't believe you. And he's like, well, I don't. I don't apologize for any of this. That's my apartment. Uh, you just have a key. And then they just are fighting back and forth. And he's like, I don't think I should have to put up with this at all. And she's like, well, you don't because we're done. Get out of my life. Goodbye. Breaks up with the guy in the cancer ward and stomps out and just boosh, slams the door. And there's like six extra nurses like pretending to look at a clipboard in there like... Oh. <laughs> And then another nurse ruins the best breakup in the world and says, no, 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 honey, we're not ready for you yet. Go sit down with your boyfriend. We're getting the machine calibrated. And she sits down next to him, and they're just hating each other with their nostrils, just like, <laughs> like that. And I felt amazing. <laughs> I felt so my heart soared because, like, I'm a ball short, I got a touch of cancer, but I'm quite accustomed to being depressed, all right? Like, I will adjust. These people have money poisoning, and that rots your soul from the inside out, and you gotta rub cocaine and helicopter rides and smoke salmon and sh shit all over yourself just to feel excited anymore. I don't have that, and that feels real good. So, I mean, schadenfreude or however the fuck you say that but also i go up and i just the epiphany broadens right like supporting somebody isn't walking up to them on the street and saying do my favorite thing and then never talking to them again it's not sending them a text message about wheatgrass juice and it's not coming to the doctor with them but being an asshole supporting a person that is sick and like really helping them it's going to their house and pretending like you've never seen Pootie Tang before even though you just saw it the other day <laughs> it's lying there next to them in a bed that is just way too small while they wrestle that black bird and then being there for them when the sun comes up and the light comes back every day so I called my girlfriend who is uh, the same woman I've been crying to all summer about how lonely I feel and how I can't connect with anybody else. She picks up the phone and I said, baby, I just saw the best fight in the cancer ward. You are not going to believe this. And she goes like, oh no, I have seen a fair few of those myself. Let me shut my office door. I want you to tell me all about it. And then just right then for a little bit, that black bird flew away. Thanks, guys. Um, I like anus-colored suntans. <laughs> Takes all kinds, I guess. All right, our next storyteller. Uh, first met her a couple years ago when she took one of our uh, classes at the Story Studio. Such a charming young lady, a beauty, and a wonderful storyteller. She's a four-time Moth winner now. And she's going to be on the Moth Radio Hour very soon. So please welcome to the stage, Miss Kate Greathead. Kate Greathead. 
<clears throat> so I thought everything was perfect, that we were going to get married and have a baby and join the food co-op and live park slopily ever after. And I was so excited for this life that I got a little impatient and there was some fighting. And one night the words shit or get off the pot were spoken by me. And he chose the um, get off the pot option. And it was his pot, which meant that I had to vacate. So on top of having my heart broken, um, I had to I had to go on Craigslist and find a new apartment, and and then I had to deal with like the nightmare of like the man in the van should be called the criminal in the van, and and I just it was so hard, and I just I I've never in my life felt so sorry for anyone as I did for myself in the days and weeks that followed. One evening, I was getting on the subway to go home from work, and it was really crowded, and I was standing by the door, and that little man came on and said, stand clear of the closing doors, please. And I'd heard him say that, you know, like thousands of times, but all of a sudden, the word struck me as like kind of personal and poetic. And as the doors were sliding shut and the train started to move, I realized, oh my God, oh my God, I'm about to cry. And I was really scared and embarrassed because I'd never cried on public transportation before. But <laughs> once it started happening, I got really into it. <laughs> It was unlike any cry I'd ever had. It was like I tapped into a sadness that was bigger than my own. And like my tears were part of the collective misery of everyone who has ever ridden through the bowels of the New York City subway system. And it was kind of beautiful and it just felt great. So the next night I got on the subway to go home from work and, and the same thing happened. I started crying, but this time on purpose. <laughs> and so what began by accident as like a involuntary outburst became an emotionally cathartic routine, which became the part of the day I most look forward to. I couldn't wait to leave work so I could run to the 59th Street station and get on a Brooklyn bound four or five and start crying and cry and cry all the way home. Just to explain, there wasn't really anywhere else I could cry because you're not allowed to cry at work, or you're not supposed to. And in my new apartment, it came with all these millennial roommates, and the walls were made out of cardboard, and I just felt self-conscious. And you can cry to friends, but only so many minutes per month, and I'd already used up my year supply of those. So the subway was all I had, and the subway's actually, I know it's weird to cry in public, but you know anyone who's ever ridden the New York City subway knows like pretty much, as long as you keep your hands to yourself, pretty much anything goes down there. <laughs> and so, and so that's what I did. It became my thing. And as the weeks became months, I started to have this problem, though. I had trouble getting emotionally aroused. The whole staying clear of the closing door line just wasn't doing it for me anymore. So I created a playlist on my phone. It was called Crying on the Subway. And it had songs like Bob Dylan's Tangled Up in Blue. And once I got sick of that, I got the Indigo Girls version of that song. And then I had... Bob Dylan's 
don't think twice it's all right and then i listened to that too many times and i found an odetta version which is really good it had like songs like that and i'd listen to them while thinking emotionally charged thoughts like what is he doing right now at this minute and what are his plans for dinner tonight and then I'd think of like emotionally charged memories. Like we used to have this little post-coital routine where we'd chug a bottle of seltzer. We both really liked seltzer. And then when it was done, I'd throw the empty bottle across the room and it would hit the wall and then it would bounce on the floor and roll underneath the bed. And this was funny and we'd laugh. And, and then I'd think about the future that wouldn't happen. Like I'd visualize us giving our baby its first bath in the kitchen sink. And then when it got a little older, taking it for a walk around the block, holding hands, and doing that swing thing that kids like so much, where you go like, one, two, three, wee. And then I think about this little hair growing out of his ear, which I actually didn't like, and I wished he would pluck. Because <laughs> it was a reminder of his age. He was 15 years older than me, which meant it was really sad because it meant that he would get old and die first. Though, of course, now this was good. I mean, it would be great if he would get old and die tomorrow. Not as a punishment, but because it would be easier for me to think of him as dead than to imagine him going on living and possibly doing these things with another person who wasn't me. So one, one night, I'm on the subway riding home from work, thinking these thoughts, listening to my crying on the subway playlist, and I'm crying, and all of a sudden my phone dies, so there's no more music, but that's okay because the seal has been broken, so like I'm, I'm good for the ride. Um, but then all of a sudden the train stops at the 14th at Union Square, and um, this homeless man gets on, and he's all, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, I'm sorry to disturb you, and then he starts carrying on about his hard life, and I was like kind of annoyed because, you know, like my life has, has been hard too. And it was kind of hard to like focus on my problems while he's like carrying on in this volume. I'm trying to tune him out and I'm half succeeding. But at a certain point I hear him pause in the middle of his narrative and say, there's a lot of beautiful women on board and no disrespect to the others, but she's my favorite. And I looked up and he was pointing at me and then I looked <laughs> around and there were like a lot of attractive women I didn't agree with him like I don't even know if I'd make the top four five or six but he thought I was the most beautiful woman on the subway car and and I, the compliment just like caught me off guard and I stopped crying and I started smiling smiling with the same abandon that I'd been crying and I was really embarrassed because crying on the subway is a sign of like a normal human response to life but smiling on the subway <laughs> is not a sign of mental health <laughs> and I, I didn't want the other passengers to look at me and think I was <laughs> so um, 
I tried to think sad thoughts, but I couldn't stop smiling. And then I started to think, oh my God, are they going to think I'm vain? Because I'm not vain. I'm just flattered. Um, but you know what? Like all the flattery in the world couldn't make up for the hole in my heart. Um, and I wanted to communicate this to the other passengers, but I was having trouble because the smile wasn't going away. It was just getting bigger. It was spreading like a big pink rash across my face until it was no longer a smile, but a full-blown shit-eating grin. At which point I got up and stood to face the window so no one could see me smiling like a lunatic all the way home. The next night I got on the subway to go home from work and it was business as usual. I made sure my phone was booted up and I was listening to crying on the subway and thinking emotionally charged thoughts. Like I was imagining him doing the seltzer thing with another woman and then them having a baby and then that baby growing into a kid and then the three of them scooting down Sixth Avenue on scooters on their way to the food co-op. And I was feeling bad feelings, but nothing that was like enough to make, to make me cry. And I was like, okay, I have to do the whole thing over to a different song and concentrate a little harder. And so I was getting a little bit closer, a little bit closer to crying. I was like, maybe almost there when all of a sudden the train stops with a violent jerk and the doors open and it's my stop and I have to get off. And that was the beginning of the end of crying on the subway for me. And it wasn't like I stopped feeling sorry for myself. It was like I could no longer get off on feeling sorry for myself. So I had to find other activities to pursue to make me feel good. Anyway, it's been a year, and I've seen that same homeless guy a few times, and I always he's walking through the car, and I always give him a dollar. I don't think he remembers me, but I'll always remember him for helping remind me that as good as it feels to feel bad, it feels even better to feel good. Thank you. Kate Greenhead! Okay, our next storyteller, he has an album that just came out called Live from Outer Space. You can find it at livefromouterspace.com, and he has a show that is every Friday at the Cobra Club in Bushwick, my neighborhood. In fact, I'm going to be at this show tomorrow night. It's also called Live From Outer Space. Please welcome Mr. John F. O'Donnell. Hey, everybody. Hey, everybody, how are you? Cool, man. All right, so I'm going to tell you guys the story. I'm going to try to tell it in a logical sort of way with a beginning, middle, and an end, but it's going to be really hard because when it was happening to me, I was not anywhere near having a logical frame of mind. I was, like, completely insane and stuff like that, so it's sort of hard to, like, retell in, like, a sane frame of mind, but I'm going to figure out how to do it also just like pretty hungover still from last night and stuff like that and I don't usually go out and drink so much but it was somebody's birthday party and I hadn't seen friends in a long time we just like things got crazy we closed down the one place and we went to the other one it was a gay bar I'm not gay but it's still really fun and we were like <laughs> playing pool and it was good okay so it's 2008 all right 
and I've already been in New York for a while. I'm a comedian. I'm a stand-up comedian, and I've already been establishing myself. Things have been going well, but now in 2008, my entire New York City life is crumbling to the ground. Everything's terrible because I'm acting bizarre. I'm super agitated. I'm very aggressive with people. I'm just acting really, really weird. My friends are distancing themselves from me. I'm getting kicked out of all of these places that I would perform at and things like that. All of my roommates have moved out because they can't handle what's going on with me anymore. I changed the locks at my apartment because I was going to get evicted and things like that. Sure, it probably wasn't helping that I was just smoking copious amounts of marijuana, just like bong rip, bong rip, bong rip, and then just like multiple bottles of red wine as well. That probably wasn't helping anything. And then I was like dressed in a really bizarre way too. Sometimes I would wear like a sea captain's hat for some reason. And I had these big brown glasses, but one of the stems was missing. So it would just sort of hang on the side. And I'd wear a tie, but with just a t-shirt underneath it. And I had a cane, but I didn't need a cane. It's just for affectation. And then my other hand, I would always carry a trophy. A trophy that I found on the street. A big one with nothing on top. The top had been knocked off. What was that trophy about? Who, who won what? We'll never know. We'll never know. So yeah, things were getting really gnarly and I was acting insane and people were freaked out and I was freaked out. I was having hallucinations. I thought I was interacting and convening with these really cool spirits of like, I thought I was hanging out with like the spirit of Gandhi and Bill Hicks and John Lennon, you know? Um, but I wasn't. And... Um, and then you have to contextualize like what was going on in the world at this time. Like now we're in say it's September of 2008 is the lead up to the election, uh, you know, the presidential election. And I really, really, really want Barack Obama to win. Like really, really bad. And it wasn't as much because of his policies as it was because I was truly, truly convinced that the Republicans and the neoconservatives specifically were evil, like satanic lizard god overlords. <laughs> who would stand in circles around pentagrams and like fuck demonic goats from behind <laughs> while conjuring up evil machinations to fuck with humanity, you know? Like those were their policies, you guys. I really wanted Barack Obama to win. And it was like a fucked up time. The financial collapse just happened and stuff like that. It came out that the Bush administration with AT&T had been spying on whole swaths of American cell phones and stuff like that. So it was really, really bad. And yes, that thing I said about the Republicans being like, you know, the satanic goat fuckers is probably not true. It's probably not true. I know it's not true. I know it's not true. But I really believe that. Try to just think and imagine for a moment really believing that, really deeply and passionately feeling that, like that level of evil actually exists and you're the one who knows it and needs to be on some sort of quest from God to save the world. Like, I really felt that pressure and I can't even describe the amount of pain that that is. It's something I would never wish on my worst enemy. I can't even come up with a metaphor because that is the fucking metaphor. It's like I was creating PTSD for myself. So... Basically, that is sort of where I was at. And how did I come to think like this? Have you guys heard of a website called YouTube.com? <laughs> There's a lot of videos on that website, you guys. And I would just get into these YouTube black holes, just four hours of conspiracy video, conspiracy video, conspiracy video, conspiracy video, conspiracy video, and just believe everything, right? 
And then during this time, a story came out that the government was going to really try to like regulate and just sort of like censor what was on the internet. So I extrapolated from that that the neoconservatives, before they left office, were going to crash the entire internet because there was all of this evidence about their crimes against humanity <laughs> on the internet. And they needed to get rid of that so they wouldn't immediately get scooped up by tribunals and instantly executed, right? And I'd be goddamned if I was going to let that happen, y'all. So what am I going to do? Perform the greatest hack of all time. Because it's time for me to own the internet for a while for the forces of good. Granted, I don't even really know how to use HTML or anything like that. <laughs> but don't worry, I wasn't going to let that stop me, right? So now I'll explain to you guys how I did the hack. It's, I won't get too mired in the details because it's like really a weird sort of thing, but I'll still kind of explain it. Basically, I would just sort of add words to URLs and then email them to myself and think that I owned everything. So <laughs> it's not so technical, really. Um, so it'd be like this. It'd be like youtube.com backslash live from outer space. That's my website. Okay. Uh, backslash whitest kids you know. They're my friends. They're more famous than I am. That legitimizes things. Okay. Uh, backslash O'Donnell Kennedy Vespoli Piecta. That's my father's law firm. Now it's legal. All right. Um, backslash intc.llc intc.llc what's that it's a new type of corporation i invented an intc an internationally incorporated corporation huh huh it's not beholden to any particular country or nation states you don't have to pay nation state based taxes instead you pay taxes to the philanthropic endeavor of your choosing like unicef okay so what's that new unique url now www.youtube.com backslash live from outer space backslash whitest kids you know, backslash O'Donnell Kennedy Vespoli Piecta, backslash intc.llc, backslash UNICEF. Email it to myself. Irrefutable evidence that I own the internet. <laughs> so I did this with like a whole bunch of websites, you know, for the world. And uh, then I was really paranoid, and this is true, I was really paranoid that I was instantly gonna just be blown up, that like some sort of drone was gonna explode my apartment building because I had the internet and they knew that I was gonna let out all the secrets about the weather controlling machines blah, 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 and everything else and the lizard stuff, you know? So, um, so I had to get the fuck out of my place. I had to get the fuck out of my apartment, and I did, but not before filling up my backpack with some books that I needed for the journey. Confederacy of Dunces by John Kennedy Tool. That could better get in that book, in that backpack. I need that. The Gay Science by Frederick Nietzsche. I'm going to need that one, too. People's History of the United States by Howard Zinn. Better get a copy. Steve Martin's Autobiography. Never know when you'll need that one. <laughs> Never know when you'll need that one. Throw that in the bag, right? So then I take that in a really big umbrella for some reason, and I leave, and I'm convinced I have to get out of New York City. I have to get to my grandmother and uncle's house in Bayonne, New Jersey immediately so I can go off the grid so I don't get assassinated by the CIA for stealing the internet. So I, uh, I leave. And at the time, at this time, actually, Barack Obama and uh, John McCain were in uh, New York for a debate, so it was really hard to get around the subway. So whatever reason, I end up taking the ferry, the ferry boat from like lower Manhattan to Staten Island, right? Staten Island ferry. And I remember when I'm waiting for the ferry, I'm so paranoid and out of my head that there's like another boat there and I just gotten back from Ireland that I was like, okay, I have to be ready at any moment. If the heat is too much to get on this other boat, that'll take me to Ireland, right? 
But, uh, you know, I didn't have to get on the Ireland boat, you guys. It was okay. Um, so I get on this other, I get on the boat, the Staten Island Ferry, and I get to Staten Island. Now, Staten Island and Bayonne are connected by the Bayonne Bridge, right? And I'm sort of trying to figure out how to get to the Bayonne Bridge, how to get a bus to all the way to Bayonne, but I keep getting on the wrong bus. So I'm getting really frustrated. I'm getting really confused. I'm really psychologically out of my gourd, right? And then somehow, at some point, I'm just walking around and I end up at the Bayonne Bridge and I start crossing over the Bayonne Bridge but not on the people walking part I was on the car driving part and I'm just like walking there on the side and there's cars whizzing back and forth and I remember at one point I really almost fell over and I really thought that I was gonna die but then I steadied myself and I looked up and I saw a plane leaving and I saw behind it some sort of weird kind of like cloud and I was totally convinced that in the plane was Barack Obama leaving New York but behind him was Karl Rove manifested as one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse living inside his weather-controlled machine cloud. And I remember saying, oh my goodness, if I point this out, I'm probably instantly going to die. But for the sake of humanity, if you see evil in the present form, you must point that evil out. So with all of the courage I could muster in my entire mind, body, and soul, I took my black umbrella and pointed it up at that evil Carl Rove weather cloud and then nothing happened. So I keep crossing the bridge and then suddenly the cars just start blaring and going at me and it's crazy, right? Oh, the cops just kind of like swarmed in. They drove in because I guess somebody, who knows, CB in the radio or something like that. I don't know. But basically they saw me there and they were like, what are you doing? Like, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, I'm trying to get to my grandmother's house is what I said, <laughs> right? It's true. Um, and, uh, and they're like, what's in your bag? What's in your bag? I'm like, books. <laughs> and then they... <laughs> So they opened it and looked at all the books and then they just drove me across the rest of the bridge and we're like, all right, see you later. And then I walked to my grandmother's house and I showed up. My grandmother and my uncle were there and they said, John, listen, it's happening again. It's happened again. And I said, what's happened again? I said, you're, you're having another manic episode. You're, you're manic depressive. You have bipolar one disorder. You've been through this before. And I had. And I'd gotten through it and had then acknowledged the fact that I'd been manic. But one of the treacherous aspects of being manic is that when you're in the throes of it, you don't have the self-knowledge that you are manic, even if people you know, love, and trust are screaming in your face that you are. So I couldn't accept it. Instead, I thought I was living at a higher level of consciousness and everybody else was just trying to label me as mentally ill so they can compartmentalize me and dismiss me instead of having to change the way they're living their life. So I'd like to say I just had a cup of tea, went to bed at my grandmother's house, woke up and everything was okay. But that's not how it went down. I basically maintained and continued to be crazy and manic in New York for another two months until cops showed up in my place and I was involuntarily committed and put in, put in Elmhurst uh, State Hospital in Queens, which was a really, really just terrible place where I was roommates with a guy named Mr. Wu who only communicated by spitting on the ground and eating oranges. <laughs> it was a very strange 
state of affairs and I got my mind back when I was there and I remember the moment that I got my mind back and realized that all of the things that I believed were total bullshit and I'd burned my entire life to the ground the only way to describe that overwhelming amount of pain and humiliation is as though I was a lion who'd been reduced to a worm but was tortured by the memory of what it was like to be that lion holy shit that's poetic I wrote that you know and then um I got out of the hospital, and then for as equally long as I was manic, which is about nine months, I was depressed for that long, but that's less sort of interesting to talk about. It's more boring, but I felt like I just like went home with my mom, and I just ate ice cream every day for nine months and watched Burn Notice in USA because I felt like I didn't deserve to watch good television. You know what I mean? <laughs> and I was really sad, but then, you know what? I picked myself up. I, I got back to New York. I started making amends with all of my friends. I started doing comedy shows again. I immediately addressed everything that I've been through publicly and honestly on stage. And within one year of getting out of the hospital, my name was up on the marquee performing at Webster Hall, the, the oldest, longest running entertainment uh, venue in New York City. So I don't know if a lot of people can really say that. So I'm really proud of that. I'm Sean F. O'Donnell. Thank you very much. John F. O'Donnell! Uh, a lot of that was crazy, but I'm not sure we should write off the whole idea of Karl Rove possibly being one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse <laughs> just yet. Okay, I should say before we get to our final storyteller that if you are interested in learning this storytelling stuff, we also have a school called The Story Studio at thestorystudio.org. We teach all kinds of workshops and one-on-one -on -one training over Skype or in person. In fact, two of our storytellers here met in one of our workshops. A lot of people who do workshops together end up in the storytelling scene and friends. So check us out at thestorystudio.org. And I should also say, hang out with us after the show. After the show, stick around in the bar, say hello, talk to the storytellers, talk to me. We love to hang out with everyone after the show. Okay, now our final storyteller. I love her so much. She is a wonderful, remarkable personality. She's been on Risk twice before doing radio-style stories, but this is the first time she'll be doing a live story with us. Uh, she's done The Moth many times, and here she is now, Miss Jean LeBec! <laughs> It's September 30th, 1966, and I am marrying Fred Miller. We are standing under the chuppah. The ceremony is long, and it's in Yiddish. We don't understand one word of it. But we are waiting for the words, and finally we hear them. The rabbi says, I now pronounce you man and wife. You can kiss Mrs. Miller. I close my eyes. This is the kiss I've been waiting for, that every bride waits for. And I turn to kiss Fred, and he turns and kisses his mother. <laughs> it was a sign. And <laughs> now it's four years later, 1970. I'm 22 years old. I have a beautiful little girl, Amy, who's two years old. And I have a husband who acts like he's two years old. Fred just takes naps all day and goes out on play dates with his friends at night. So we are living on food stamps. And I am trapped by the fact that we have no money. Amy thinks that turning on the lights means you like candles. 
So on the morning that I hear the news that um, the city university system was starting a program called Open Admissions with just a high school degree, you could go back to college, any college, I dressed Amy, got on the 41 bus down Flappish Avenue and enrolled in Brooklyn College as an education major, along with hundreds of other women. We went back to school and our children came with us because we had no childcare. So we would be sitting in classes and women would be nursing their babies and taking notes at the same time. And there would be cranky toddlers, you know, climbing around chairs. I had Amy in this kind of baby backpack and I would just kind of wiggle all day and keep feeding her pretzels, crackers, anything to keep her quiet so I could focus on the lecture. So we formed this uh, committee and we went to the administration and we said, look, we need a room in a building on campus and the administration reluctantly agreed. So we started a daycare center. We brought in cots and cribs and toys and stories and we made up schedules and in between classes we would run to the center and give a hug, wipe a tear, make lunch. And other women began to come to the center as well. It became like a place for women to gather. But by mid-year, uh, administration wanted the room back. And so early on a January morning, it was really cold, 10 of us stuffed pillows under our clothing. And with signs, we went around chanting, we've been fucked by the administration. We've been fucked by the administration. And by noon, there were 100 of us, all these women stuffing pillows up their clothing. We've been fucked by the administration. They called the police. And the police began chanting at us, you know, go you know, feed your husbands, take care of your kids. And we would chant, we've been fucked by the administration. And students began leaving classes. It got really big. It was electric. And we got our room. My friend Sally organized a woman's consciousness raising group. And every Wednesday, we would sit in her living room on this burnt orange shag rug. We all looked exactly the same. We were wearing overalls, beige work boots, a white t-shirt, we actually looked like we were part of some kind of prison gang, you know, <laughs> chain gang, you know. But we would sit cross-legged and we would share a joint and we would cry, we would laugh, we confessed our sins and we gave advice sometimes terrible advice. A woman would share, oh my God, my husband he wants me out of these overalls and into a dress and makeup and look a little sexy and we'd be like, leave him. And, you know, or it would be, or it would be like, you know, um, he doesn't do the dishes and you know, I try talking to him, he doesn't understand me, leave him. There should have been like some kind of warning label, you know, if you enter this group with a man, you will leave without that man unless he's your son. <laughs> so, the book, Our Bodies, Ourselves, had just come out, and we would read it and pour over it like it was not the American sex novel. We just had so much fun. We would say words like, ovaries, fallopian tubes, how's your uterus? <laughs> it was, but it was at one of these meetings that I met Mona, and she had hair to her shoulders, red hair and big gray-green eyes. I liked her right away. She had style because her overalls were embroidered with beautiful little flowers, very intricate beautiful little flowers hanging on these green zigzag vines. And she smoked Benson and Hedges. She had this way of kind of tapping and she would take a drag and she would exhale and she would talk while she exhaled. So the smoke just kind of went around her words. I thought she was so sexy. But 
After six months in Sally's women's group, my marriage to Fred ended, and I think he was relieved. You know, I promised him he could have as many play dates with Amy as he wanted, and Mona's marriage also ended, and we became friends. Her daughter Ingrid was exactly the same age as my daughter Amy, and we lived very close to each other. So we began to rely on each other. If she couldn't pick up Ingrid, I did, and if I couldn't pick up Amy, she did, and we began to shop together and cook together, do laundry together. A natural rhythm kind of formed. And when I wasn't with her, there was always something I felt I had to tell her. But we had this major disagreement, major, and that was what we called our vaginas. Because I called my vagina a vagina, and Amy called her vagina a vagina, but Mona called her vagina a snatch. And Ingrid called her vagina a snatch, which drove me crazy. So we had to change the names of the vaginas, so we decided on pussy. But now, now the vaginas had two names because the girls couldn't make the transition. So Amy would say, my vagina pussy. And Ingrid would say, you know, my vagina snatch, like, you know, John Doe or Jean LeBeck. And one evening, we got babysitters, and um, we went to see the movie Cabaret. And we were sitting in the car right outside my apartment building after the movie. And, you know, we were sitting, we were singing, Monday makes the world go around, the world go around, when Mona just looked at me and she said, boy, you know, I, I really feel like kissing you. So I said, so kiss me. And she kissed me, and oh my God, it was like butterflies were in my mouth, and it was like trumpets, ta-da, and sunsets, and this was the kiss I was waiting for. And I ran out of the car, and I ran into my apartment, and I just paced the kitchen floor saying, call me, call me, please call me, and she did call me, and I grabbed the phone, and I could, she's going, Jean, and I'm going, Mona, and she's laughing, and I'm laughing, and I slid down the kitchen wall all the way to the hard linoleum, laughing, holding the phone, my knees to my chin, gripping the phone and laughing, and so we became lovers. But we really didn't know what to do without a penis, and so <laughs> if, if you can imagine, like, tiny little kittens kind of rolling and petting and you know, like all these little But that was kind of like what we were doing. And then, but one night, Mona lit candles, and she put on Carol King. And to the song, You've Got a Friend, she found her way past my pussy snatch vagina to this whole other place. And I came, like really came, for the very first time in my entire life. Well, before going to sleep that night, she said, and you know, sweetie, you could do this to yourself anytime you want. Well, I woke up that morning with this unbelievable, you know, joy, this new sense of power, and I worked six blocks away in a daycare center. We had a 45-minute lunch, and so the moment it was lunchtime, I ran those six blocks, and I prayed that elevator didn't get stuck on some godforsaken floor, and I masturbated. I masturbated quickly and slowly, lying on my bed, with my clothes on, with my clothes off, at my kitchen table, in front of a mirror, but then... One day, just as I was about to make my escape, 
I am surrounded by four of my coworkers, and they're like, no, 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 you are not going anywhere. And they kind of ushered me into this tiny little classroom, and there were like little chairs in a, in a semicircle. It was like a celebrity intervention, and we just all sat down, and Pauline, who was the spokeswoman, said, where are you going every day? You leave here as soon as it's lunchtime and you come back looking all weird and you know, you don't eat lunch with us anymore. You miss Neil's birthday. What the hell are you doing? And I looked at them all and I said, well, well, I'm masturbating. <laughs> and Pauline said, you're masturbating. You're, you're masturbating every day? And I was like, yes. I am masturbating every day. And she's like, you're masturbating every day. And I'm like, every day. And she's like, holy shit. And I said, but listen, you know, don't, you know, tomorrow I'm eating lunch with you. Don't worry. Tomorrow I'm eating lunch with you. And she said, no, 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 no. Tomorrow I'm going home and I'm masturbating. <laughs> That evening when I told Mona that I think, you know, I might have said too much, that I think everybody might now know I, I masturbate, everybody in the daycare center, she was, she was like, ha, ha, ha. Now, every time you go to the bathroom and you spend a little extra time in there, they're going to be like, ha, ha, we know what you're doing in there. <laughs> Mona and I loved each other, and we never questioned it. We took it like a gift. Uh, we healed each other's wounds, and we helped each other go forward. We gave each other courage. I wouldn't have gotten through school without Mona. And it broke my heart saying goodbye to her, but she wanted to go to Maine and live on the land and grow vegetables and poop in an outhouse and build a cabin and no running water, and that wasn't what I wanted to do. And so we, we said goodbye. And... Um, for the first two years, we wrote letters. We tried to stay in contact. We visited each other. She came to New York. I went to Maine. But life has a way, and we just kind of melted away from each other. And 40 years passed, and we never said one word. But I found her on Facebook, and we made kind of a telephone date. I was so nervous calling her. And then I did call her, and the phone rang, and then she picked up the phone and she was like, Jean? And I was like, Mona? And we laughed and we laughed. And in that second, I was once more that very young, young, young woman who slid down my kitchen wall holding a butterfly kiss. And she was wearing embroidered overalls. Thank you.
that's it for this week, folks. This is Camera Obscura behind me now. We have so many amazing live shows coming up. On April 11th, we are in Philadelphia. Come out to see us. Uh, We're with First Person Arts again, so check out that show. On the 24th, we are back in New York and Los Angeles. A nerd melt in Los Angeles, the pit in New York City. On the 25th of April, we're in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. We've never been to Pittsburgh before, so come out. Let's make that a very special evening. And then on May 10th, we are in Boston. So find out more at risk-show.com slash tour and be a part of it all. Meanwhile, we're always taking story pitches from the shows that will be happening later in the summer. So if you live in London, England, or Chicago, Illinois, or Portland, Oregon, or Washington, D.C., and I'm sure I'm forgetting one, pitch us for crying out loud and let us know what city you're in. Go to the submissions page at risk-show.com slash submissions and send us your story ideas. Now, I also want to say that, guys, over at the storystudio.org, holy camoles, there is suddenly a lot of interest in our corporate workshops. The word is out. People are loving the workshops that we're doing for business staffs. So if you think that your staff might also benefit from a workshop in how to communicate in a more emotional, more personal, more experiential sort of way, the kind of communicating that people remember, the kind of communicating that persuades, get in touch with us because we can custom design a corporate workshop for you and your team at thestorystudio.org. And of course, there are our open workshops in New York and Los Angeles, as well as our one-on-one coaching over Skype. I think that's about all for now. So until next week, folks, Today's the day. Take a risk. I do. I want to fly so high. Fame! <laughs>